This Climate One podcast is sponsored by General Motors. How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. From the Commonwealth Club of California, this is Climate One, changing the conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. I'm Greg Dalton, and today we're discussing clean technologies and the young people and companies building and financing them. Companies in Silicon Valley are doing amazing things that you probably haven't heard of yet. One company, for example, turns scraps from your kitchen table into jet fuel used by United Airlines. That's happening today. We'll also hear about far-out ideas such as coating fruits and vegetables with super-thin shells that prevent insects from getting at them, thus reducing the need for pesticides. Sounds cool, but can you make a buck or get a job? Over the next hour, we'll explore the clean economy in California and around the country. Along the way, we'll take questions from our live and sold-out audience here at the start of the Clean Tech Week in the San Francisco Bay Area. We have three entrepreneurs here with us to show us the way. Andrew Chung is founder and managing partner of 1955 Capital, a clean energy venture fund. He previously worked for the legendary venture capitalist Vinod Kosla. Holmes Hummel's founder of Clean Energy Works, which helps people pay for energy upgrades to their home. She worked as a senior policy advisor in the U.S. Department of Energy in the Obama administration. And Danny Kennedy is managing director of the California Clean Energy Fund, which finances startups. He previously co-founded the rooftop solar firm, Sungevity. Please welcome them to Climate One. Andrew Chung, I want to first ask you to share your story. Your parents fled the Cultural Revolution in China and came here, and you started working in a restaurant at five years old. Tell us how you got there from uh, that to what you're doing now. Sure. Uh, So I was born in Chinatown, New York, to a pair of immigrant parents uh, who did leave China during the Cultural Revolution, and my first language was Cantonese Chinese, so I didn't really speak English until I was about five. Uh, My parents left Chinatown because at the time it was a pretty rough place to to raise a kid, and they settled in a a little hamlet in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, uh, and we started a Chinese restaurant, like many Chinese immigrants do. And so as the one kid that sort of knew my ABCs, uh, watching Sesame Street. They put me out in the front. I sat on a stool. Uh, and because at the time, I, I guess my math skills were pretty decent, uh, I could add and multiply by six in my head and, uh, and whatnot. They put me to work, and uh, I was a person greeting people in a accented English when they came into the store. And you sold your first business at 20. Uh, yeah, no, 20, uh, 21. Okay. 21. Thanks for being honest. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I was lucky to, uh, study math later at, at Harvard. All of that, uh, that math training in the restaurant turned out to, to yield some good fruit. And, uh, uh, and while, while I was at Harvard, I started my first company there. And, uh, instead of going to wall street, like many of my, uh, mathematician classmates did, uh, I ended up joining a company called Trilogy, uh, which was an enterprise software company in Austin, Texas. Uh, and there I was able to convince the CEO to give me a, a couple million bucks to start a, uh, a, an e-commerce platform company using Trilogy's uh, platform technology and uh, a year later sold it uh, to a public company. So my first exit. 
uh, Holmes Hummel, a uh, lot of work around the country trying to get more girls uh, involved in STEM careers. So tell us how you got involved in your energy career. You know, I, I came of age after the Iraq War. And the geopolitical tension of our nation being aligned with the petroleum supply chains impressed me deeply about what clean energy could be as a life-saving drug. Flash forward 20 years, uh, a career in the clean tech space has led me to be more committed than ever to access and affordability for the clean energy solutions that I know that we need. And that means for everyone of every gender expression, class, creed, and nationality. And it drives me to do the work I do today on inclusive financing. Fabulous. Uh, Danny Kennedy, you sound like an immigrant. Are you really an immigrant? Strangely, no. Born in Los Angeles. Uh, and to Australian parents who didn't like the pollution so much and looked for ways to get back to the blue skies of Sydney, so grew up uh, there, but then um, came back to marry the love of my life, who's also been on your program, uh, Mia Yoshitani, uh, and is a, an activist in the community here, and it was an excuse for me to try my entrepreneurial stuff. Fabulous. Uh, we'll get into uh, some contributions other immigrants are making later, but let's talk about the Trump impact. People are concerned right now what can the new administration, what can they do to slow down or impede uh, clean energy? Now, there's a saying, Andy Chung, in Silicon Valley, not to invest in a company that is dependent on a particular policy because you don't like government. Uh, what do you see as the, the ability of the Trump administration to slow down, move toward clean energy? Well, I think one of the things that um, the DOE in the last 11 years that I've been involved with clean tech has done very successfully is foster fundamental science research and innovation. Um, when I was at Lightspeed for five years and then as a, as a partner at Coastal Ventures for another five years, uh, we worked with a lot of companies that uh, spun out of the ARPA-E program, uh, which was a special research group within the Department of Energy that focused on investing in very, very early stage uh, breakthrough projects at national labs, at universities, uh, within certain companies, and that type of innovation is absolutely critical to our energy future. Um, many of the financial investors, like myself or other groups, have a more difficult time investing when it's only a professor and uh, an idea for a new breakthrough in physics. And over the last 10, 11 years, because of the support of the DOE and projects like that, uh, as well as other programs to foster the commercialization of these types of technologies, uh, we had a lot of hope that uh, America would be able to maintain that technology leadership. And the, one of the things that I worry about with uh, the current administration is the level of focus and emphasis on a number of those types of projects, which I hope uh, will continue to exist because it is fundamental to American competitiveness, fundamental to our energy future, and it's something that, if we do it the right way, uh, can allow us to maintain that type of leadership going forward. Back in 2014, Rick Perry joined us for a discussion on energy. Take a listen to what then-governor of Texas had to say. Do you see any hope or future for a price on carbon, whether it's a tax or any other way, to dr help drive innovation? I think we have, I think we have enough resources in this country, if they're allocated properly, to fund the innovation that's in place. I don't, I'm, I'm not a big believer that you have to uh, go raise a new tax to go pay for. Um, we haven't done that in our home state. Um, matter of fact, 
we have, we have grown quite a substantial economy over the course of the last 14 years without raising new taxes. When, when we deregulated the electricity market, um, we started a boom in Texas in the renewable energy sector. Uh, today, the nation's leading developer of wind energy is not one of those progressive states on the East Coast or the West Coast. The number one wind energy producing state in the nation is along the Gulf Coast. It's in Texas. Rick Perry, when he was governor of Texas, now heading the U.S. Department of Energy, Holmes Hummel, I'd like you to comment first. He says, don't need a carbon price. Thank you very much. Texas went ahead, became number one in energy without it. How do you respond to that? Well, certainly Texas does deserve a lot of credit for bringing on an incredible amount of renewable energy for the ERCOT electricity market. Uh, However, Governor Perry, soon to be secretary of the Department of Energy, has a steep learning curve uh, as he assumes a leadership position of an agency. I think he has publicly said he regrets suggesting should be dissolved. This is a really challenging position for the federal leaders who have civil service careers at the Department of Energy, have been stewarding billions of dollars in public portfolios to invest in the innovation ecosystem of the United States that keeps us competitive globally, as Andrew was just pointing out, to keep the United States relevant and leading in a clean energy future where each new breakthrough uh, allows us to remain competitive in the enterprises that create jobs and create economic opportunity for our people. Danny Kennedy, your take on how the Trump administration will handle clean energy, and maybe Rick Perry won't, well, maybe he'll support it as he did in Texas. Yeah, either that or he'll be run over by it. You know, there's a moving train and they're either going to get on board or get caught in the tracks because it's no longer just about what the federal government does, what California does, what many other states do, and more importantly, what the rest of the world does is going to drive this market so that in 2020, at the end of this first and hopefully last term of this administration, we will have solar at half the cost now and more than double the volume globally. We will have storage similarly scaling through this technology cost curve, which has always been relentlessly down for wind, solar, storage which means we will be delivering the lowest cost electricity of any technology anywhere ever in history, lower than when coal was first invented as a steam boiling tool to uh, drive turbines and, and so on. So they can't stop that. They can try to get in the way. They can harm Americans who will miss out on the benefits of that, which are cleaner air, climate protection, Uh, lower cost electricity, as I mentioned, the jobs inherent in it, just to name a few. Or they can get on the bandwagon, as their major peers have in the world. China, for example, just announcing in its next five-year plan, $320 billion worth of spend on this by 2020. The Indians committing to 100 gigawatts by 2022 of solar alone, etc., etc. So, you know, it's for Trump and friends to decide whether they want to be riding the tide or fighting it, but I know who will lose. Holmes, let's pick up on the jobs. What are some of the most recent data on jobs in the clean energy sector? You know, Where the, are they? Where are they growing? Where are they? Yeah. 
The United States Energy Employment Report released in January gave us some very hopeful news about the tide in the United States. Uh, Solar jobs up by a quarter, wind jobs up by a third, together accounting for about half a million jobs, more than half of which are in the construction and manufacturing sectors. But even twice as large as that is the jobs that were documented in the energy efficiency industries, also accessible jobs uh, in the trades, And on top of those million jobs in energy efficiency was another near quarter million jobs in efficient vehicles, uh, electric vehicles, plug-in hybrid vehicles, uh, and hybrid electric vehicles. Can I just jump in to point out the counterpoint, which is that fossil fuels, meanwhile, are shrinking jobs, like 150,000 permanently deleted from the workforce in America in that same period. And, you know, coal mining is now maybe 60,000 strong in this country. We're talking about a solar sector alone that employs 300,000 people. Then there's these other ones that that Holmes just mentioned. The oil and gas production industry is maybe 120, 150,000 people in America. They're not big employers. They just carry this mythical status in our mind while clean energy industries are the job creators in America coming out of the Great Recession year on year, growing jobs 20% compounded per annum. And Andrew Chung, why is there this perception that clean energy means pain and killing jobs, saving the environment? Is that a false dichotomy? I think so. And I'll call out something that Danny said earlier around what is happening globally and what is happening in other countries. Um, If you look at China, in 2013, one single year they deployed more solar in one year than the United States did in its entire history because of the level of government support around the initiative, the desperation in that country for cleaner air and renewable sources of energy, and an entrepreneurial movement around creating companies and creating jobs to be able to foster this type of new deployment there. Similar stories in places like India, Southeast Asia, and other places where, again, perhaps unlike what we have here where generally, except for today, Nice weather, blue skies, white clouds. In places like that, you have millions of people dying every year of air pollution-related disorders. So that has created this type of movement that has enabled a breathtaking growth in sectors like solar, wind, etc., which has created a massive number of jobs in a lot of these countries and also creating new economies as a result. And so Danny mentioned the five-year plan in China, the Chinese executives have essentially put clean energy as one of its top three initiatives for the next five years and arguably beyond. And part of that is what's good for the country in terms of the, uh, the uh, shift to better and cleaner resources, but the other part is what it can do to the middle class that's growing there in job creation and enabling a new type of economy to, to result. Holmes Hummel, if the U.S. pulls out of Paris, will some of that momentum slow down, the Paris Climate Accord? You know, I think that the United States leadership in developing that accord uh, can't be overstated. But I also think that the Trump administration's declared intention to withdraw will not discourage the rest of the world from taking action that they know uh, helps everyone improve their prospects of a livable planet and viable economies that are otherwise really quite vulnerable to the kind of earth system response that we should expect. The extreme weather, uh, the droughts, floods, fires, and storms that take a toll on everyone's economy without arresting the contamination of the atmosphere with the carbon pollution that the Accord was designed to arrest. 
Andrew Chung mentioned China, not a democracy, but uh, two key democracies have elections this year. There's elections in France, elections in Germany. They could also take a turn on energy as, as they've de- taken turns on other things. Holmes Homo? I mean, there's no doubt that there's a geopolitical tide of populism that is uh, linked to <clears throat> people's perceptions about globalization and the way that it affects their local economic opportunities. I want to return to my friend Danny Kennedy's perspective on the technological innovation path that we already see well-charted. The relentless decline of the cost of the clean energy technologies allows them to cross in one market after another the points of prosperity at which we see exponential growth and deployment. And when we do, that's when we see opportunities for economic growth take off. And people see that the self-interest in participating in that economy overrides the discouragement of incumbents. If you're just joining us, that's Holmes Hummel, an energy CEO. We also have Danny Kennedy, head of the California Clean Energy Fund, and Andrew Chung, a venture capitalist from Silicon Valley. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, Danny Kennedy, what are some dazzling things out there that we have, uh, haven't seen yet that some gee whiz technologies that might really be game changers that might really catch our attention <clears throat> we haven't heard about yet? Just one comes to mind as you ask that question is maybe not too gee whiz, but something I think is game changing, which are electric bikes. If you think about electric assist bicycles and how often you're starting to see them in the streets of this city and cities all around the world, they're the most sold bicycle in Amsterdam these days, which says something if you know anything about the they Dutch. They pass me on the Golden Gate Bridge every weekend. Right. And, and <laughs> I think that this ability to put lithium iron and the energy density in that battery stack into a bicycle and to transform two-wheel mobility into something that can move a lot of people that aren't just bicyclists in... in uh, Lycra, as I expect you might be, Greg, uh, <laughs> into you know, f- uh, people that use their bikes a lot and use them for all sorts of different functions, moving goods around and so forth, is, is going to change the way we plan cities, is going to w- change the, the walkable, livable scale and nature of our communities. And that stuff's being pioneered by, you know, at the moment in America, I think there's a great story, a company called Gen Z, which stands for Generation Zero Emissions, and the entrepreneur behind it is a South Asian gentleman, Vish Paleka, is an Indian migrant to the U.S., now an American citizen. And he's working for Mahindra, the giant conglomerate out of India that produces more tractors than John Deere. But he's producing electric-assist bicycles in Fremont, California, and electric-assist scooters in Detroit, Michigan. And the scooters here in San Francisco are the scoot system that you see on the streets. The fact that you've got like an Indian entrepreneur changing the game with electric mobility services, I think is, is one of those great examples of how weird and wacky and wonderful this world is and what is going to come of it. We sent one of our producers to check out a local company that's making clean tech fun, very similar to what Danny just mentioned. Boosted is a startup that makes skateboards powered by rechargeable lithium-ion batteries. You don't have to use your feet at all. You just ride by pressing a button on a remote control. And yes, the boards which sell for up to 13 they start at $1,300 and up, can make it up San Francisco Hills. So let's meet Sanjay Destor, one of Boosted's co-founders. My name is Sanjay Destor. I'm a co-founder and CEO of Boosted uh, here in Mountain View, California. We build lightweight electric vehicles, and the product that we sell today is an electric skateboard. So it's a about three-foot-long uh, bamboo longboard, and then we add a lithium battery, motors, and a remote control. 
So we have those two models. Both of those go up to a max speed of around 20 miles an hour. For the miles on the board, we're running at about 20 times more efficiency in terms of like energy consumption per mile traveled than a car, and about five times better energy efficiency than a motorcycle or scooter. And so, if you know, it's on par with the most efficient vehicles in the world in terms of how little energy can I spend getting a mile away. We have all these stories from customers saying, I sold my car. You know, I don't drive my car nearly as much. People making the changes that a lot of us have wanted for a long time in terms of, you know, better energy consumption and more efficient transportation. And they're doing it by using a product they really like and enjoying the fact that it also benefits the environment. It wasn't that we were like, how do we come up with something cleaner? It was, how do we come up with something that works really well? And if you think about the broader clean tech community and, and businesses around it, there are some fantastic clean tech businesses, but it's not just that they're successful because they're clean tech, they're successful because they're great products and people use them. Our customers tell us that it feels really magical to them to move around their city that way, to say, oh, like, I, I actually feel a sense of freedom, and because this thing is really fun, I look forward to using it, like, I look forward to that trip. I never used to look forward to, like, getting to work. I think a path to getting people to be passionate about things like sustainability is to create magical things around that. We want to be building solutions that we want to use. It can't just be something we feel obligated to use. I think it should be something that we are like, you know what, that's the best solution. Sanjay Destore from Boosted, which makes those electric skateboards in the Bay Area. Danny Kennedy, passion and excellence. Exactly, and really exciting. And just to try to bring the context of what it's going to mean, take India, where these sorts of uh, personal electric vehicles, whatever you want to call them, are being deployed at scale, and the electric assist bikes and scooters. The Prime Minister and Cabinet all the way down have a view that they don't want to fall into the trap of private ownership of private <clears throat> vehicles and certainly not around a four-wheel vehicle platform. They want to do two wheels uh, at most for, for one vehicle to get to zero emissions, which will mean as they urbanise India, which is, what, 1.2 billion people and hundreds of millions of those humans moving into cities, those cities can be very different to the mistake of sprawl that we've had to live with and the carbon pulse and the climate problems that that's created. So, you know, it's, it's entrepreneurial in, insight, like, I want to make this cool and better that is going to change the world in really profound ways downstream. Some people worry that they will run out of lithium, that lithium will get really expensive, if it, you know, the whole world suddenly running on lithium-ion batteries. <clears throat> Andrew Chung, some people are betting on different chemistries uh, in case that happens. So do you think that we have a problem with lithium supply? And what are the other possibilities for this battery revolution? Sure. Can I ask the, answer the G-Wiz question after sure. that? Sure. Okay. So I think lithium-ion, lithium if, if folks kind of think back to the history of this type of battery, it dates back to when you had laptop computers emerging on the scene in the early 90s. So a lithium-ion battery was designed for a laptop or maybe a cell phone in mind, not for grid-scale storage, not for electric vehicles that have the duty cycles that uh, far surpass that of a, a, a laptop computer. So if you think about the cost, too expensive, lifetime, your cell phone battery probably starts to weaken after about a, a year or so of usage. And then safety. The number of stories that we have about lithium-ion batteries blowing up in planes and so forth uh, kind of arise from that. So if you think about developing a battery technology from the ground up to revolutionize that with the grid storage application in mind, with an electric vehicle in mind, 
chances are the ultimate answer is that lithium-ion is not going to be the long-term solution for that. So I think for right now, over the next five to ten years, maybe shorter period of time, lithium will continue to be the, the, key, the key chemistry of choice. But as a number of the different companies that, in some cases, we invested in it while I was at Coastal Ventures or other great firms are, are, are taking bets on, the DOE uh, is taking bets on, there will be a newer generation of non-lithium technologies that will emerge over the next period of time that I think will be very gee whiz because they promise lower-cost batteries, safer batteries, batteries that might last five to ten years without degradation or longer than that uh, and so forth. I think that will be a very exciting uh, development for the industry. Uh, but back to your question. G-Wiz, yeah. Yeah, so G-Wiz is, is really what uh, we as venture capitalists really get excited about. What are the technologies that are going to revolutionize different categories within the clean tech space, sustainability, and so forth? Uh, I think what Sanjay said uh, in the Boosted video, which, uh, full disclosure, is a coastal company, uh, about magic around the emotional connection between a product or service and the end consumer. That is absolutely critical when we think about sustainability or clean technologies. It's not just about whether it's green or if it's something that you know, different governments might get excited about. It's something that establishes an emotional connection between investor and investee, between consumer and producer of that product. And so a couple of the examples that I'll, I'll throw out there, um, one of them is uh, one that Greg, I think, called out in the very beginning. One of the holy grail problems in agriculture, sustainable agriculture, is how you can reduce the use of pesticides and maintain or boost crop yield at the same time. Uh, so most of the, the crops in the United States are regulated very heavily, so a farmer can't put too much pesticide in order to juice the yield of their crop, which they've prob- the farm that they've probably had for generations. Well, in places like China, Southeast Asia, India, and elsewhere, when Food supply is a survival issue where many of these farmers will not survive to the next season unless they can push out more product. Oh, and by the way, the food demand is growing at unprecedented levels. A lot of these places will sacrifice on safety in order to use more pesticide to juice yield. So this is a global problem that starts with a lot of the developing countries but certainly affects what we have here because at the end of the day, pesticide is poison. You're killing insects in order to preserve the food. So one of the companies that we invested in at 1955 Capital called Crop Enhancement has developed a polymer chemistry platform that farmers can use as a spray product. They spray it onto their crops, fruits, and vegetables. It creates a 10-micron thick invisible layer on top of the crop that when insects land on top of it, they can't detect what's underneath. They get bored and they fly away. They don't chew the leaves, they don't pierce the fruit, they don't damage the plant in a way that would reduce your yield. And so they've been able to show in a number of different trials the use of no pesticides, maintaining the same yield or improving the yield. And they've been able to also show that they can get farmers to adopt this product without them changing behavior because it's the same spray equipment. And in fact, instead of spraying the pesticide seven, eight, nine times a season, they only need to spray this once or twice because... It just so happens that the, the polymer stays on there through rain and other features. So we think that that is the example of the G-Wiz type of product that I think Greg is referring to. It's something that for farmers, massive emotional connection and excitement because they don't have to change their behavior, but they save money and they do better with their products. And then for the end consumer, this is a very important aspect 
for food safety because you don't have poison being introduced to the planting of the product, and it's something that's very safe. So that would be one example. Um, do you want me to do another? Or? Yeah, let's ask Holmes Hummel for something that you think is really exciting that establish emotional connection for people to get them really excited about. You know, when I left the Department of Energy, one of the things that distressed me the most was the growing clean energy divide that was produced by the financing mechanisms that all of our entrepreneurs were left with to ask people if they were wealthy enough to take out the loan, sign the lease, or take on the lien, or if they were poor enough to qualify for the assistance. And if you couldn't prove to your contractor that you were one or the other, you just weren't in the clean energy revolution. I don't think the clean energy revolution is a spectator sport, and I don't think it's possible to get to 100% clean energy out of 100% of the people. So I became more committed to inclusive financing. I think it's the biggest breakthrough of our time to imagine being able to open all cost-effective clean energy resources to all people everywhere, regardless of their income, their credit score, or their renter status. And the good news is that the people Mm. who already know how to do this are in some unlikely and improbable places, like the coal fields of eastern Kentucky or the persistent poverty zone that for 150 years has been in Northeast North Carolina. Even more recently, Calhoun County in Southern Arkansas that showed within six months they could get a unanimous vote out of their utility commission to approve inclusive financing to allow their utility to invest in anything that was cost effective on the customer side of the meter and upgrade their homes, buildings, school buildings, colleges, anything that was cost-effective, including a net savings component for the customer, and allow the utility to recover their costs on the bill with a charge that was less than the savings. We allowed uh, the Clean Energy Works, um, were allowed the opportunity to work with communities in each of these frontline community areas, the coal fields in eastern Kentucky, down east North Carolina, southern Arkansas, and we've seen investment profiles surge once inclusive financing is introduced, it's my commitment to be able to open up more of those markets to more products and solutions in a technology-neutral way so that no matter what G-Wiz comes along, it's open to everybody. Danny Kennedy, isn't that really fair that clean energy has been elitist and coastal for too long? Uh, it, it was the case that you could have said that Eight years ago, I think, for example, in California, Malibu, Marin, the coastal elites, uh, and very quickly through financing mechanisms, not necessarily fully inclusive of all FICOs, uh, we were able to spread, for example, rooftop solar to a breadth of communities. And now in terms of you know, census tracts or zip codes, however you want to measure it, the bulk of solar rooftop in California, which is still the nation's largest market, is being sold in the Central Valley, for example, the Inland Empire of Los Angeles. It has spread east because of these different products that have taken away the big sting of the upfront cost of the thing and allowed customers to pay for it as they go. But that's not to say there's not more to be done. Uh, and, and likewise, the electric vehicle revolution needs to demonstrate that it can be brought down into that range where it's both affordable and takes people to work and back and does what they need from the duty of the vehicle for 200 plus miles or whatever the the range needs to be. And hopefully this is the breakout year for those vehicles. We have to 
make sure we are indeed lifting all boats. There has been too much uh, of the point you've made, and, and some of that is excused as the way you scale and the sell it to the rich to get it up in number, <clears throat> and certainly that's kind of the strategy Mahindra's on with the electric bikes and scooters the story that I told you before. You know, the thinking is we'll make them here for the Americans, sell them at a higher cost per unit, get them right, bring the form factor to this magic moment, and then ship it back to India to sell at scale. And there's some sense to that in terms of market development, but that doesn't mean we don't have to do more as an industry to ensure there's equity in the benefit spread of these technologies. And those aren't just in the services we provide, the lower-cost electricity, lower-cost mobility service. They're in the jobs. They're in the ownership of these hundreds and thousands of companies that are coming up in this space. You know, the mom and pop shops that now dominate rooftop solar. We want those to be as democratized as we can. And it's in the the leadership and the corporate development and the staffing of the companies in this 300,000-person strong solar industry and several hundred-thousand-person strong smart grid industry that's growing. We need to demonstrate that this technology boom will not be a bubble phenomenon for the left and right coasts of America, will not leave the heartland out. Uh, because if we do, we, we will suffer the losses we saw in 2016, I believe. I think, you know, to ignore that the extremism, populism we're suffering in the electoral sense is uh, a function of 20 years of stagnation of living wages, of jobs, opportunities, and other things for middle America is like ignoring climate science, which you've covered on this show many times, and ignorant to do. So we have to learn that lesson, and we have to design a rollout of these technologies and this opportunity that does lift all boats and gets to the middle of America. If you're just joining us, uh, Danny Kennedy is managing partner of the California Clean Energy Fund. Other guests today at Climate One are Andrew Chung from 1955 Capital and Holmes Hummel. Uh, I'd like to go to our lightning round uh, with yes or no question, true or false, starting with Andrew Chung. Uh, true or false, Vinod Kosla's early enthusiasm for fuels made from corn was misguided. False. I think that he was an early visionary in something that still needs to happen at a global scale. And a lot of what was invested in those categories was in the first or second inning of what might end up being an extra inning game. Still, uh, still rooting for corn fuels. Okay. Not necessarily uh, corn fuels, but as okay. a class, the general fuels area. Okay. True or false, Danny Kennedy. Elon Musk is a genius. <laughs> false. Uh, Andrew, uh, true or false, the Tesla takeover of its corporate cousin Solar City was a bailout. False. Holmes Hummel, uh, you are 100% certain your retirement account contains no revenues from fossil fuels. True. Mm. Okay. Uh, there's a, there, for those of you with mutual funds, there's a, a place you can go to, fossilfreefunds.org. You can type in the ticker for any mutual fund that you own, and it will tell you how much uh, fossil fuel revenue is in that fund. Um, Andrew Chung, what is the most stupid business plan you have read in recent memory? I got a business plan for a offshore wind farm network that leveraged a certain set of technology, but the business plan required a billion dollars of funding in year two. And when the entrepreneur was talking about it, he was 100% serious and not on drugs. (laughs) 
billion dollars in year two. Well, okay. I want that question. Uh, Danny Kennedy, what's the most <laughs> stupid business plan you have read in recent, recent years? The Australian government's efforts to bring clean coal back. Uh, Holmes Hummel, name one stupid energy regulation that should be repealed. Oh, gosh. You know, I'm not a fan of those who have tried to repeal net metering rules that allow us to accurately value the production of electricity at the retail point of delivery. I hope that explains both the jargon uh, and... So you, you think yeah, they, they ought to be protected. Like, is there any rule that you think ought to, ought to go now that you're not in the Department of Energy anymore? Oh, gosh. You know... All the rules are good? <laughs> I'm going to say that right now, the bigger problems that we have are breaking through commercial barriers and not regulatory barriers. Andrew Chung, uh, true or false, venture capitalists are not as smart or as good looking as they think they are. (laughs) Absolutely true. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Danny Kennedy, uh, true or false, American venture capitalists are lightweights when it comes to drinking. I'm not going to insult anyone else here tonight, so I'm not going to answer that question. <laughs> Just see, you, see you in Australia. Okay, this is an association. I'm going to mention a phrase or a noun, and you're going to say the first thing that comes to your mind. Good, bad, or ugly, no filtering. Uh, Danny Kennedy, hydrogen-powered cars. <laughs> Holmes Hummel, carbon capture and storage. We need it. Andrew Chung, uh, organic food from China. Huh? (laughs) No such thing. Don't trust it. Uh, In the future. In the future. Uh, Most people in Hong Kong wouldn't trust it. Danny Kennedy, uh, natural gas. No. Andrew Chung, lithium-ion batteries. The future is non-lithium. And last one, Holmes Hummel, California's high-speed rail. We'll probably get there faster with something else sooner. All right, that's the end of our lightning round. Let's give them a round of thanks for getting through that. (laughs) And now, here's a Climate One Minute. As we all know, air travel is one of the major causes of greenhouse gas emissions. Now some airlines are turning to biofuels to help clean up the skies. Jim Macias, president of Fulcrum Bioenergy, joined us recently to give us his recipe for cleaner, greener airplane fuel. And its major ingredient comes straight from your kitchen. Our feedstock is solid waste or garbage. It's all the garbage that uh, everyone here throws away in their black bin. It's the stuff that is not curbside recycled. About 50% of that garbage that's thrown in the black bin is organic. It's rich in carbon and hydrogen. And we put it through a process to separate out all the non-organics, all the rocks, dirt, Grit, glass, metals, that goes to recycling. Surplus plastic goes to recycling. The rest we put into a feedstock. And then in the closed-loop gasification, you just take those complex molecules, break them up into simple molecules, and then reconvert them into a fuel product. It's the same process that the Earth used in fossil fuels. It's, it's down in the ground where there's no oxygen, but it's high pressure and temperature. Converted all those fossil molecules into oil and natural gas and other products. We're doing the same thing, but in a controlled environment instead of millions of years. We do it in a matter of seconds. That's Jim Macias of Fulcrum Bioenergy. He stopped by Climate One in 2016. Now back to Greg Dalton and our live audience at the Commonwealth Club. 
Andrew Chung, tell us the story of Jennifer Holmgren, who she is. She's a, I want to touch a little bit of, on how immigrants are contributing to some of these clean energy companies. Immigrants have taken a lot of hard knocks lately. Tell us about Jennifer Holmgren. Sure. Um, Jennifer is the CEO of one of the companies for which I serve on the board called Lanzatech. Uh, Lanzatech has developed a technology that can convert waste gas out of industrial factories biochemically into valuable fuels and chemicals. Um, they use a certain type of microbe that was actually uh, developed and discovered in New Zealand uh, to be able to do this type of gas fermentation, and Jennifer is the, uh, the uh, executive behind it. Uh, Jennifer actually uh, grew up in Ecuador, uh, and uh, with his brother, who later became the CEO of a little company called Symantec, uh, came over to the United States and uh, they studied here. Uh, she got a PhD at uh, University of Chicago, Urbana Champaign, uh, got her MBA at University of Chicago, uh, and then rose up through the ranks at uh, Honeywell UOP to become uh, one of the key leads in their global uh, renewable uh, fuels practice. Um, so we uh, were lucky to be able to hire her as the CEO of Lanzatech uh, a number of years ago uh, to really, uh, in some sense, take what was then a research activity in New Zealand that yielded some interesting results with some local steel mills and turned it into a world-class global organization that has since uh, raised several hundred million in funding and, yes, uh, continues to uh, be not only uh, surviving but thriving in what is a very, very difficult uh, sector within cleantech. Uh, I think Jennifer is very unique because she is one of these cleantech entrepreneurs that brings together a very rare set of characteristics. She is technically very competent. Again, she's PhD in chemical engineering, and so she can build this stuff. She understands how everything works, how the bugs work, how the reactors work. Uh, she has had a number of years in uh, business development negotiating uh, significant deals globally, uh, and then is an incredible uh, leader as well, being able to lead a team through a lot of ups and downs. The largest steelmaker in China, the number four steelmaker in China, that had a major pollution problem that faced them in Shanghai and Beijing. They have been scouring the earth for different technologies that could reduce the waste gas that was going in the air, the carbon monoxide that was polluting the, uh, the air and creating a uh, climate change issue. And when they saw Lanzatech, magic. That emotional connection was there, and they agreed to fund the first two pilot plants for Lanzatech in China, outside of Shanghai, outside of Beijing, and be willing to work with this startup company uh, that was in Chicago uh, to be able to commercialize this technology. And ultimately, after several years of testing the technology in China, um, global players started to pay attention. Groups like SK, Siemens, ArcelorMittal, Mitsui, they were watching what was happening in China, and the moment that our data looked good and that pilot was successful, these larger players pounced. And our first commercial facility will likely be in Brussels, Belgium, with ArcelorMittal, where they will fund the commercialization of our first full-scale plant. So Jennifer was really the, the mastermind and architect around this, being able to take a technology that really showed this type of magic to a lot of Chinese partners that were desperate for this technology and had a lot of capital to be able to support it and thus be able to give the technology now back to the world. Danny Kennedy, a lot of the companies that were just early disruptors in the internet, you might remember AltaVista, Lycos, long forgotten names, uh, they went away, they're no longer around 20 years later. Uh, 
same perhaps might be true of some of these solar companies today. You said you're bullish on solar. Solar is going really strong. But solar stocks are down badly in the last year while the stock market's been soaring. So it was t- help us understand that, that contradiction of stocks doing so bad. You say things are going great. Then how come the stocks are in the tank? Yeah, well, to your point about the internet and the Alta Vistas and the dog piles and the other companies, or in another mm. metaphor, you know, BlackBerry, Nokia, Palm Pilot, the fact that those companies are no longer household names that we've all got in our pockets doesn't mean mobile telephony hasn't been an amazing change and, and business opportunity through our recent lived history and experience. And likewise, the solar industry is now delivering, like I said, you know, in Morocco and Chile, three and four cents per kilowatt hour electricity. You know, these are not mature markets. These are markets into which developers are jumping with the kit that has been matured through the US and other markets scaling them and now delivering the lowest cost electricity ever sold ever, anywhere on earth. Uh, and, and so in that disruption... The disruptors sometimes get taken out as well. We're kind of creating an earthquake in the electricity markets. We're creating lower cost electricity year on year, whereas the history has been for 100 plus years, higher cost electricity year on year. And there's massive margin compression. There's a challenge for who were the insurgents two years ago now being challenged as the incumbents in the new iteration of things. And that's the entrepreneurial innovation cycle that we actually want to foster because we still have to drive solar from where it is on a million solar roofs in America to 80 million, which we think are the totally addressable market. We still have to make it available in all countries so that we've got such an abundance of sunshine power that we fill up our mobile tools and technologies, boosted boards and electric bikes and cars and all the rest with free electricity, which is where we're actually headed if you follow this technology curve down. But in the midst of that, any one company, I'm not going to guarantee to you will make it through, but that industry and that promise of lower cost electricity, which is clean and better and more job dense and can be shared and owned by people everywhere rather than centralized by capital, as was the case with fossil fuels, that story doesn't go back. We're talking about clean energy at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. Let's go um, to our audience questions. Welcome. Perfect. I'm Natalia Olson. I'm trying to immigrate from Washington, D.C. to San Francisco. Okay. <laughs> um, so I served in the administration until the last day. And so we were scrambling, uh, trying to get things across done quickly before January 20th. And so we didn't think that the clampdown was going to come so quickly on our climate change and energy efficiency programs. But um, what do you see? as a vision for the next six months, uh, maybe a year, on what we can do. I mean, all of us can complain and protest, but we need to figure out some solutions and alternatives, I think, to what's going on. We'd like to take that. Danny Uh, Kennedy. You know, I I would just say thank you for your work and your point. And yes, we have to resist the madness that's coming at us. Uh, and, And, you know, I really mean that, like get out there on the front lines and protest in the streets because that's what's working. And so we have to now start to walk and chew gum because we're going to have to do that, resist stuff, but we also can't be distracted by every dog that barks at us. We have to keep on the path of energy efficiency. You named it. This state owns it, did it for 
50 years, and then we have to deliver on this cost-down possibility. We have to drive down the cost by scaling up the deployment and innovating with the entrepreneurs those segments of our community that still are dependent on fossil fuels. Four years from now, we'll be a lot further down that road regardless of what DC does, but we do have to fight them tooth and nail if they throw the wrong measures at us. Andrew Chung. I was uh, lucky to have afternoon tea with the former prime minister of a a European country recently, and um, I asked the same question to him. And he knew what I was doing at 1955 and what I've been doing for a long time. And his answer was, as fast as you can, show examples of this working. Show examples of global partnerships that enable the commercialization of a great clean technology that creates jobs, creates impact. And that's the best way to prove to the administration, prove to the world that it's a good economic value proposition and it's a good business decision. So in, in our world, in looking at how a lot of these companies can think more globally, find partners, not just in the U.S., which you should keep doing, but open your minds and hearts to Chinese partners, Southeast Asian partners, Indian partners, and realize where the desperation is. Where is the demand at, at a, just at, at such a high volume that companies, governments, and partners will do whatever it takes to be able to solve their issues, that's a great place to create bridges and those types of partnerships that, uh, like in Lanzatech's case, uh, can yield some great results. Next question. Welcome to Climate One. Alex Levinson with Pacific Environment. Um, I knew tonight would be a, a very affirming and hopeful night, and thank you for meeting our expectations. But I'm going to ask one doom and gloom question. What is the one or two things that the Trump administration and Congress might do that would really damage the clean tech, clean energy sector going forward in the next couple of years? I think that the clean tech entrepreneurs have benefited from a tide of federal investment that's been underappreciated, started by the Department of Energy, by the Small Business Administration, by the Department of Commerce, by the Department of Defense. And I think that the constituents of mayors and governors, university professors, and you know, chambers of commerce who have seen the small businesses bring the benefits of those breakthroughs to their local economies need to resolve to engage with the members of the Appropriations Committee in Congress to protect those budgets in particular that continue to feed the big multiple returns that we see from that part of our economy continues to outpace our GDP of the country every single year. And that's where I would go to defend first. There are certainly a lot of people who are concerned about regulations from the EPA and the rollback of regulations from the EPA. And I would say that all people everywhere who value clean air, clean water, and healthy food should stand up for their right to public health and participation and due process uh, when they start to make rule changes that literally put people in jeopardy. Uh, Can I Kennedy? offer, you know, I, I think all that Holmes just said, and there's not a lot they can do within the normal remit of government. My one thing that they can do to derail this train is war. And, and, you know, that throws the world into turmoil and sets us back in a way that, you know, we can't even imagine. And the fog of it will make, make this entrepreneurial and investment rationale we're espousing, which I believe to be true, very hard to imagine carrying forward. And we have to guard against that. Like, this is that time, people. Like, we need to take seriously 
who we have and what their motivations are. And as Holmes said right at the outset, we've fought wars by and for and of this country for oil, and we could do that stuff again. And so we have to be cautious of that if we want to keep to the promise of this clean energy abundance that I think is right at hand. You know, we're on the cusp of greatness here, people, but we've got to keep our eyes on the prize, push forward, and keep the bad things from happening. Andrew Chung. Two things. One is if they cut off further investment into fundamental science in the areas of clean tech. We've already talked about why that's so critical to the future of the development of these technologies and maintaining American technology competitiveness. And then two, if we close our borders. If we close our borders, a lot of these great technologies that we're going to see over the course of Clean Tech Week that we've seen from the DOE, they will not be able to commercialize successfully because clean tech is a global phenomenon. It's not a coastal phenomenon. It's not an elitist phenomenon. It's a global phenomenon. And you need all the sources of partnerships that you can get, all the sources of funding that you can get, uh, and that, that really could be very damaging to uh, the future of energy technology. That's Andrew Chung. Also on Climate One today, we have Holmes Hummel and Danny Kennedy. Let's go to our next question. Welcome. Uh, my name is Stephen for Haverbecker. I have a question. So uh, virtually um, no solar panels are made in, in the United States. Uh, virtually every panel is, is made in China. So we're actually buying Chinese panels and putting them on our roofs. Do you think uh, that's a problem? Do you think we should do something about it? Do you think we can do something about it? U.S. companies making those panels have gone out of business. Who'd like to tackle that one? Uh, sure. Well, I, I'm the lucky investor in uh, a company called Stion, which is a thin film company that still manufactures solar panels out of Mississippi. And I believe that they are one of the few, if not the only one in the thin film world that's still doing that today. Um, I think the fundamental answer to your question is, if there is a company that steps up with great technology that can get support from whether it's private financing sources or public financing sources to create a new industry. That is the key. That was done in the semiconductor industry. That's been done all over the place in the bio, biotech industry. Why not in the clean energy industry? But the key to that has to be technology. It needs to be something that is breakthrough and has that kind of innovation that the Chinese or the Indians can't just replicate in a short period of time and take it overseas. And so that, again, is why it's so critical that we maintain our innovation edge and continued support is, is in, uh, in a lot of these types of solar breakthroughs, battery breakthroughs, wind breakthroughs. Take your pick. Can I just have Real a quick quickly, go um, at, at explaining that? Depends on what you want, what the question behind the question is, I guess. But, uh, you know, I'd be careful of trade wars because they lead to cold wars, which lead to hot wars, for one. Uh, and then the other is we want jobs and we want clean energy at low cost. And what China has done for the world is delivered solar panels at low cost wonderfully through the centralization of manufacturing in the Wuxi area of Shanghai province. You know, that's the story of the last decade or so. Uh, and all the jobs I mentioned in the solar industry downstream of the factory gates are because of that. And there's about four times as many jobs to every job in a factory in the sale, finance, installation, and maintenance of those solar systems. So by creating low-cost solar panels in China and sharing them with the world through the thing we call global trade, and I'm not necessarily a free trader at all, but if, if we hadn't had that, 300,000 Americans wouldn't have got jobs in the solar industry in the last decade, pretty pure and simple. And 
that's been a great function for the world economy to drive solar to this incredible point where it's at now. I actually think we will relocalize the assembly of solar modules in America because weight will become such a big part of their cost structure. That's a longer-term trajectory. And like I said up front, I think batteries are going to be built here for a variety of reasons, co-location of R&D with manufacturing and other things as well. But the fact of the matter is this has been the good news economic story in China, India, America, Europe, Japan, out of the Great Recession. This has been the job creation machine and we need to keep on doing the things that we've been doing that work rather than sort of, you know, try to um, set up walls, if you will. We need to build bridges. I want to wrap up by asking each of you, what can an average person do uh, either to, 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 you know, to get into clean tech? Either uh, What can an average person do to make a difference in the things we're talking about, Danny Kennedy? I liked your suggestion, Greg, of getting on the As You So Foundation Fossil Free <clears throat> Index, the, the ability to make sure that you're pension or 401k and 529 accounts are free of fossil fuels and so you join the divestment movement that's a great start Holmes Hummel because 90% of the financial wealth in the United States is in the hands of 10% of the families I'm going to move from the financial investment side to just the everyday way of life what is the collective imprint that we each have in our food choices in our transportation choices in how we invest and keep our homes and our communities. I think we make the path by walking and everyone can put one foot in front of the other in the quest for the horizon that is a fossil-free future. Andrew Chum. I think by you showing up or listening to this podcast, that's already part of it. The key thing is to continue to believe that this is an important mission that all of us need to embark on together. A lot of the lumps that the clean tech sector or the, the entire landscape has taken over the last several years, I think, just should strengthen the resolve of those who are continuing to believe and continuing to wave the flag. I'm trying to reinvent venture capital to invest in this area that a lot of my peers have dropped out of because I continue to believe and I continue to think that in this landscape is the largest opportunity that anyone in my generation or any immigrant in my shoes could ever tackle. And so that's the most important thing, is to carry the optimism that this is an important area, that whether you're a scientist, whether you're an entrepreneur, whether you're someone who just buys these types of products, or whether you're uh, a, a large institution that has the capability of putting a significant amount of capital behind it, is to continue to believe that this is important and that there is a, an infrastructure and ecosystem around you that will help take us to that next energy future. Every action is consequential. We have to wrap it up there with our thanks to Andrew Chung, managing partner of 1955 Capital, Holmes Hummel with Clean Energy Works, and Danny Kennedy, who's managing director of the California Clean Energy Fund. I'm Greg Dalton. You can join the conversation on Twitter using our handle at Climate One. You can listen to podcasts of this and other Climate One programs in iTunes at climateone.org. I'd like to thank our enthusiastic audience here at the Commonwealth Club and online and on air. Thank you all for joining us. Climate One is the sustainability initiative at the Commonwealth Club of California, a nonprofit and nonpartisan organization. I'm Greg Dalton, executive producer. Kelly Pennington is our director of audience engagement. Jane Ann Chen is the producer. The audio engineer is William Bloom. The Commonwealth Club's CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. 
Join us next week for a conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment.